On this show, many of our guests are the direct recipients of tremendous adversity. What do I mean by that? Trauma, loss, misfortune, many times eventual triumph. First-hand experiences are told right here. But what about everyone else in that person's orbit? Going through adversity can feel so lonely, but there are people around us that can lift us up. That's our rope team. This episode is about ripple effects, specifically the one that happened to our guest Brad Ludden when he experienced cancer through the eyes of a close family member, his aunt, when he was barely a teenager. At the time he kayaked, so intently in fact, it led him to the world championships of freestyle kayaking. Soon thereafter, into a side of the sport that involved going where no one has gone before. Expeditions to faraway places and descending rivers for the first time. First descents is what they're called. There are a few places on the world that people don't know about or haven't been, and it's harder to find yourself alone, he says. Cancer touched his life early on, and the ripple effect of that experience, merging with his passion for kayaking, finally came to a head when he discovered, as he says, gifting a sport you love to someone else can be transformational. He founded an organization that provides life-changing outdoor adventures for young adults impacted by cancer and other serious health conditions. It's called First Ascents. That was 20 years ago. I hope you enjoy this conversation between host Eric Weinmayer and guest Brad Ludden. I'm producer Diedrich Jonk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon. And I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, welcome to the No Barriers podcast. And this is Eric Weinmere. I'm psyched to be with, I'm going to call my friend Brad Ludden because we met and hung out a couple months ago. And so I think we're at friend status, right Brad? Oh yeah, I would be honored to say you're my friend. (laughs) Ah, thanks. Yeah, we met skiing up in Vail through a mutual friend. And uh, we were having a blast, although it was about like 60 mile an hour winds. It, w- it might have been the coldest, windiest day I've ever skied. How did that stack up against all your challenges in the outdoors? It was right up there, man. It was so funny, right? Because it was like spring skiing. And the next day, I think it was like 60 degrees and sunny. And we just happened to time it on one of the gnarliest days Vale had all season. Memorable, though. It was the kind of day you did one run and you had to go into the lodge and warm up and... <laughs> And contemplate whether he wanted to go outside again. There was a lot of that. I think we actually did go outside a few more times, though. And then we decided to have lunch. And then that ended the day because there was some wine involved, I think. Yeah, I seem to recall that. Yeah, vaguely. (laughs) Yeah. So I saw this morning a kayak video. And you were saying in your speech on the online, you were saying, hey, my sport of kayaking is this niche sport and a already a niche sport of kayaking and then this great 
kayaking video showed and it was beautiful music and that's all I got out of it. So what the heck was going on in that video? <laughs> what are you doing? Explain it for the blind, even sure. though most people on this podcast can see. <laughs> and you're quite the accomplished kayaker in your own right. So feel free to correct me if I screw up here, but um, no, but you're, you're at another stratosphere. I was going down the Ottawa river and I'm sure you've been down that. And I was, I got through this kind of big rapid called Garbinator. And I was just so happy to get through it. And I was like holding on to a rock, taking a deep breath. And the guy who was guiding me said, hold on a second. And he got up, we went up an eddy and started doing all these rodeo tricks on Garbinator. And I just thought, God, might as well give up in the world. There's like people <laughs> like 10 levels above you, no matter what. This um, guy was flipping and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, that, that freestyle kayaking is what I initially was really into. And I actually competed in the world championships of freestyle kayaking on the Ottawa River back in 1997, if you can believe that. <laughs> so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it was a lot of fun. I found myself as I aged a bit with the sport, I became less interested in competing, more interested in exploring. And so I switched my focus from this freestyle competition side of things to expedition kayaking. And, you know, a, a lot of what I think maybe in our talking to each other, what drives you too, is just like to go be in these uh, new places and, and be excited by new sights and sounds and scents. And, and just that challenge of, for me anyway, of being the first person who to explore a river, to do a first descent of a river was always not always, but really what drove me through the majority of my career. And I'm just so grateful that I, it, like I was, like you were saying, it's the, like the most niche part of a niche sport that you could imagine, but I loved it. The competition side got you into kayaking and then you moved into expedition kayaking. You went all over the world. You still are going all over the world doing amazing river descents and dive into it a little more. What is the appeal of being the first person to go down a section of a river and then wh what does it do to your life afterwards yeah like what's the, the appeal and then also what's the connection what's the uh, long-term effect yeah the, uh, great questions and the appeal for me was it's it was just such a like a true form of exploration i, I feel like the world's shrinking every day with technology and there are fewer places on the world that people don't know about or haven't been. It's harder to find yourself alone in the world. And these first descents, they were all of that for me. To know that as we entered these gorges that I was the first person to be seeing them was just mm. was just astounding. To just know that you would get out and scout the rap and be the first person to stand in that place on earth was just really special for me. They were all they were also very challenging in, in a lot of ways, logistically, physically, mentally, and the it wasn't all good times for sure, but, but every successful first ascent seemed to be pretty transformational to, for me. It forged really deep connection with the people I was on the expedition with lifeline. I'm still really close with these guys and we were just chatting about the friends you, you had at Everest are still very much in your life, right? You form these deep connections in those spaces and places. And, and also just the personal growth to know that you stepped into this challenge, knowing that it was going to be challenging and found yourself succeeding at the end of it, there was a tremendous amount of, of personal growth and positive transformation that has really shaped me, I think, in a lot of ways into who I am and where I am today, which I'm proud of. That's awesome. And so you touched on this. I find kayaking can be really adrenalizing. It can be really scary. And I've heard people describe it as fear management. 
How did you deal with the fear side of kayaking? When I was going down the Grand Canyon, my friend Lonnie Bedwell, who's another blind kayaker, we were talking and I said, what's your fear level? And he said, oh, it's three out of 10. I was like, I'm like a nine out of 10. (laughs) And I'm just like, so I'm curious what your fear levels have been in the past. Yeah, kayaking is uniquely scary. The, The river is so powerful. And if it, if it's working with you, my goodness, is that an amazing feeling? But the second it works against you, it's horrendous, right? It's it's really intimidating. And so I, I spent a lot you of my I, early days. We I call it cryacking. Spent more time <laughs> <laughs> sitting in my boat in the eddy, crying than I did like going downstream. And, and I think just over time, I I found myself like taking really little baby steps with it and finding small successes, right? Like I would do an eddy turn and I was like, wow, okay, that was great. I didn't flip over. And so I do another eddy turn and, and just built on that. All of a sudden I found myself going from this place of fear to this place of excitement and passion. Not to say the fear wasn't there, but I, I was excited about the fear. Yeah. There were a lot of rapids I ran at the peak of my career that were just horrifying. And I look back on on that now and I'm just like, what were you thinking? But apparently it worked out okay. But the fear was there. It was just... I guess you said it, you could manage it differently, right? You could harness it. You could take that energy and turn it into energy to get you through it successfully. And then when you are faced with that much fear and you succeed in the face of it, the feeling of joy at the end of that is indescribable. And I think I I became more addicted to that feeling than anything else, right? The, the fear wasn't what drove me. It was the success, the feeling of success on the far side of that. And I loved that so much. Yeah. Were there times that you got in like over your head? You're like, oh my God, I'm way in over my head, even at my level of talent. Yeah, there were a few. And quite frankly, I think that's good. That was like, some, there were a couple of really specific. I mean, there's no way to progress through the sport like you have without from time to time just going, whoa, that was too much. Yeah. You have to, you have to bump up against those those boundaries and be like, whoops, okay, that was too much. Reel it in. <laughs> and there's just a, an element of chance at that level. You can't there's you can't control every everything on a river, obviously. And so you you can eliminate as much risk as you can and make good decisions, but at the end of the day, you're just hoping it works out. And there were a few times yeah. it knock on wood, I obviously survived and that that was the goal. But there were a few times that I I was pretty shocked at how close I came to not not making it through and that after time after enough of those those incidents that that started to catalyze the end of my professional career because then you realize you are mortal and that this could end your life and then you're like "Eh, i don't really want to die doing this i do love it but maybe not that much it was it it all's well that ends well but it was a wild ride for sure yeah it seems like in kayaking and all these sports there's a kind of faith Maybe not a spiritual faith, although I think it is a sometimes a spiritual faith, but a faith that you're going to get your you're going to get through that. It's a faith in your talent. It's a faith in your team, and just a faith that it's going to work out on the other end, right? Otherwise, there's no way to go into something so crazy. No, I think that's spot on, man. I, I think it's it's almost like a it's like a sixth sense, right? It's this intuition almost, like it's this. Yeah, you just you, like you said, you have the team in place and you trust yourself. And you, there's a bit of a leap of faith there, where you're just like, okay, I feel good about this. Let's see if I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> now, how'd you get the nickname Man Salmon? Oh, you man. have a lot of nicknames out there. I see online. I do the charity first ascent that, that I founded. Uh, 
early in the very first program back in 2001 we adopted this tradition that everyone gets a nickname and it's become uh-huh. awesome man it's become just this huge part of i, I think it unbeknownst to us took on so much more meaning than we had anticipated but over the years i've had it i've worn a few nicknames none of which i'm overly proud of but man salmon was gifted to me by one of our participants one day i was it was a kind of a bigger section of white water and we had a lot of participants flipping over and, and swimming out of their kayaks and so I was, I would go rescue one and get him to shore. And then I would attain Eddie hop my way back up the river, past another group of participants, go get the next one, get them to shore. And this one girl, we, I got her to shore and she was like, watching you kayak, it was like watching this man salmon just go up the river. And I was like, <laughs> oh no, don't, did you just say man salmon? And sure enough, someone else was like, man salmon. And uh, I was like, oh, there that goes. There it's stuck. Yeah. That's a good one. I yeah, like it. It's, it's, pr- it's that's very, that's very great that's grabbing me for sure it's we ski i'll call you <laughs> snow salmon yeah there you go i'll take it so you grew up in northwest montana i believe it sounds like a rural youth and with lots of wilderness and then your, i think your parents gave you a kayak now my parents never gave me a kayak they, that seems so random the way you tell the story my dad just gave me a kayak how did how, why the heck would your dad give you a kayak when you were nine did yes. he see you like just loving the outdoors or had you mentioned kayaking? Did you see a video? Yeah, it's funny. It is. That's a really good question. It's such a random thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've never actually thought about it in that, in that perspective, but funny enough, my mom, uh, so I was, I think we moved here when I was like four or five years old from Wyoming. This is where I was raised, Northwest Montana, as you said. And my mom always loved water. And so when we moved here, she like, she was sniffing around. What could I get into with water? And she actually tried like windsurfing on our big lake here that she didn't like that so much. And then she randomly stumbled onto kayaking. And back then it was like, there was like seven people on the country that kayaked, like nobody did it, but she got into it. And I think my dad was, he was really intrigued by it as well. And saw it as if you're going to do this, maybe I should do it with you. And so they got into it together when I was six years uh-huh. old. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And so they would drag us, my sister and myself along, and we would go to the river on the weekends and we would camp and watch them kayak. And I think we were both interested in it. I wasn't quite sure how I felt, but then my parents bought each of us a kayak. I was nine, she was 11. And, and then began the kayaking phase for sure. I was just so afraid of that sport for the first couple of years of doing it. But it was a great way for our family to connect in the outdoors. As you said, like Montana especially back then, there wasn't a lot else to do if you weren't outside. And so this was just a really fun way for us to spend time together as a family. And then obviously I got a little too carried away with it. And next <laughs> thing you know. You got all excited and you <laughs> became a com- professional competition kayaker and went all around the world doing that for a while, right? That, yeah. That's, oh, and before that though, you went on a seven day trip to the Rockies with a bunch of kids. And I'm sure you guys kayaked and ran around in the woods and just had a blast. And that seemed like that was a turning point for you, right? Yeah, it was, man. That was, I credit my parents just in the way they raised me. It was pretty non-traditional and they gifted us with a lot of freedom and the belief that, you know, at the age of 13, which a lot of cultures do this, that I had to go through a rite of passage with, I think there were seven other boys my age. And that on the far side of that experience, I came home and they said, You're, we view you as an adult now. And you, you can make your own decisions. You're responsible for your own actions. And the only rule is that if, if you're in school, we'll help 
support you a, a little bit financially, like food and shelter. <laughs> but yeah. if you leave school, you're on your own. And so I immediately left school and not immediately. But so your parents after. really bought into this idea, that rite of passage, you are now an adult. That's pretty radical parenting. I think it's really impressive. It, it is. Because your brain's not fully formed yet. A lot, of, I, I think with some kids just totally go off the rails yeah with that kind of freedom it, it, it's pretty like it, looking back now i'm like wow that was radical like you said I'm yeah like, they put a lot of trust in me and, and i think that was the key though is that they did trust me and your first reaction at that age when someone tells you that is ah party time i'm gonna go do all the things that i was told i couldn't do but then you're like wow right. actually that wouldn't that would be disappointing and you're like i the biggest fear in all of that was like oh now that i have this freedom i don't want to disappoint my parents not to say it didn't yeah all the time but you definitely for me i started making decisions like okay res- more responsible decisions aside from pursuing kayaking as a profession that wasn't that responsible but i didn't want to go out and be crazy or do stupid things because i just knew that would be a bit of a betrayal of the trust that they had gifted me that's really beautiful God, that's powerful. And it sounds like that has been a part of your life, that kind of independence and taking that freedom, but also saying, okay, with freedom comes a responsibility to be smart and make good decisions that, you know, that, that bring you forward in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It was, it definitely set the stage well to live a, yeah. a unique life for sure. So I'm so grateful for it. It was arguably the biggest turning point in my entire life was that experience. And at that time, as you were growing up, your aunt got diagnosed with breast cancer and that was a another pivotal moment in your life in terms of understanding now that cancer is something that affects so many people it's not just some random word and then you started volunteering at a pediatric oncology program and so tell us about that progression tell us about your aunt yeah man you nailed it it was before that cancer was this word that I had heard and I knew it was bad or whatever. I I'd never thought much about it. And then I just remember coming home from a river trip, actually, and, and hearing back then when you had, you had to leave a, you had a, an answering machine, right? And you had to come home, you hit play, and you had to listen to all your messages because that was how things went. I just remember this message came on from her and she was just hysterical. And my mom and dad started crying and I was just like, what is going on? And they said, Aunt Lori has cancer. And I just, I was like, man, I don't even know what this means, but obviously it's bad. And so the next couple of years, we we were really close with her. She fought it and she survived. She's still alive, which is wonderful. But wow, it was incredibly disruptive to her life. And that was pretty eye-opening to me. It's just, wow, this, okay, this cancer. And so my mom actually got involved with a local pediatric oncology program, volunteering there, and had the idea that... <laughs> I should, there was a little pond on the property and she said, Brad, you, you have all these kayaks. Why don't you bring the kayaks up and teach the kids for a day? And I did that. And, and that was another really big turning point for me was just seeing this sport that I loved so much, this being able to gift it to someone else and have, see them have a positive experience with it too. And that was before that kayaking was just this thing that I love to do and that I pursued personally. And after that, I saw it as, as a, a way to impact others. And so I, that set me off on a whole different course, which has been really fun. Yeah. It seems like you've been parallel processing in your life. You're doing these amazing things and then also giving back. But I just think, I just wonder as a kid, like kids, 
You got your own kayaking that you're hyper-focused on. You got dances. You got homework. You're trying to balance a lot. Some people would probably just double down and focus on their life. Instead, you really turned into the storm in a way. Are you just like an old soul or did you have just like a really soft heart or why do you think you turned into it in that kind of way at such a young age? Yeah, I I think I, my mom was always the one who was volunteering, trying to help others. She was a special education teacher and I'd like to think that she instilled a lot of that in me, just the the belief that the right thing to do is try to help others, right? And I find so much joy in that. It's not, uh, I, it's almost selfish. The act of trying to help someone else really brings me a lot of happiness. I, I've always gravitated toward that. The, the, with first the sense after that day when I first volunteered at the pediatric program and just taught the kids how to kayak on a pond, I, I just realized that I would never find as much joy pursuing my own kayaking career as I would by teaching others how to kayak. And just that realization alone, it was was enough to drive me to really want to focus on giving, gifting this experience to other people because it just made me happier. (laughs) Selfishly, right? And that eventually evolved into your organization, which is this beautiful, thriving organization that impacts so many people called First Descents. And I'm wondering, like, how you got that name? Because clearly you're not bringing cancer survivors on first descents. That's obvious. But there's this metaphor there of a first ascent kind of experience, maybe like in terms of our inner our inner growth. Yeah, no, exactly. I When I was, so I had the idea, after I volunteered that pediatric program, I built, and then I think it was a year later or so, I realized that I wanted to do more with this and that there was nothing at the time for young adults like my aunt who are facing cancer. There were two, over 250 pediatric programs in the country, but nothing for young adults. And so I, th- I thought, okay, this this is what I want to do. Um, and so so I started formulating the idea over the course of a year or two. And, and um, the first thing I had to think of was, what what should I name it? And to your point, Eric, it was, to me, it was obvious because was- the first descent I was experiencing as a professional athlete, as we mentioned earlier in the show here, really transformed me in a positive way, drove deep connection to my fellow kayakers and really were like the high points of my life. And so I started thinking back about like, what experience do I want to gift to someone else? And it was that I wanted to create a transformational kayaking experience that formed deep connection and left these young adults more fulfilled, happier, transformed. And so of course, thousands of people have been down the section of the river that, that they were kayaking, but for them, it was their first time. And with that became that same level of transformation and growth that comes with any first descent. And at No Barriers Organization, we, I've just, I don't know why it took me so long to learn this, but it took me a long time to figure out that when people go through something like cancer, there's a physical challenge, of course, but the physical challenge, hopefully they survive it. And now there's this aftermath, there's this fear, there's this anxiety, there's this PTSD that takes on and becomes an emotional baggage that that really weighs you down. And so I was thinking, as the, you take these young people on kayaking adventures, in a way you're pushing them to shift their identity and say, look, like let's move forward into a new life. And that is a first <laughs> descent, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Our, yeah. our participants, the majority of them attend the first week-long program with us and identify as having pr- pretty severe levels of anxiety, depression, many of them. This is just generalizing, but and feelings of isolation and a- alienation. That's just, to your point, that's a lot to live with. And to be able to come to a place to, to connect with your body again, possibly for the first time since your diagnosis, to meet other people your age going through the same things since the first time since your diagnosis, to create an, an identity, a new identity that's yours. You're this kayaker now, you're a rock climber, you're a mountaineer, you're an ice climber. To get this nickname, that's a, that's our slogan is outliving it, right? And it's obviously has a double meaning, but it, it's like living beyond that experience and regaining that control of yourself, your life, and creating this new network of friends who you can lean on to to get through those hard times and the data we've collected. It's the what next. It's the what next. Exactly, man. Exactly. Which is so cool. And so you've experienced this too. I was, when I was like really researching you, you, a lot of people in their, in their kayaking life profession, they peak out in their twenties because it's just so radically physical. Right. And you're like probably at this young age, right? You're a young guy still in your twenties and you're like, maybe this is my peak what next? I got a long life in front of me. And I, I thought that's what these cancer survivors are saying. I'm like, I'm young. I've survived this incredible thing. And, but I haven't really necessarily thought about what is next. Like now I have to actually not just survive, but go on and live. Did you, has that connection ever, has that connection ever happened in your mind? Oh, absolutely. What they say, every athlete dies to deaths, right? The day that they put their sport at that level on the day that they pass. And so it's there's a massive identity issue there and trying to understand who you are in the world and what you, what you want to be next. How, what chapter will you write for yourself next? And that's incredibly intimidating, but also incredibly empowering, right? Because it's a blank slate. You can choose that, that next chapter. And I think so many of our participants, by choosing to come to these programs, are choosing to write that next chapter and, and regain control of it and have their own narrative as to what their life looks like next. And so many of them adopt a lifestyle of outdoor recreation. They We have a big food component in our programs. They adjust a lot of their diet and nutrition. A lot of them get into mindfulness, yoga, meditation. And that's pretty awesome, man, to see this, this diagnosis that's incredibly disruptive and, and traumatic turn into this springboard this catalyst to take on this new life this new identity and begin again and so what about the mechanics of actually bringing people who have survived cancer they're probably weak they're they might have lost a limb they they've maybe been through chemo through radiation they are beat down so how do you take them from that state to now putting them on the river (laughs) cold water a physical sport the fear of flipping over and swimming there's a lot there. There's probably a lot of liability waivers yeah, signed. A lot of waivers. That's <laughs> the truth, man. The, we run really small programs relatively. So they're week long, mostly 15 participants. And then we just have an insanely incredible team of employees, of sealed staff, of volunteers that run this thing so well. And each experience is, is built for the individual. It's really beautiful to see we've accommodated so many different challenges for folks. I, you and I were chatting with one participant who was blind. That was the first time I had 
tried to kayak with someone who was blind and man, hats off to you for getting into it. That it's, that's a whole nother, <laughs> that was wild. Yeah. People have amputations, people have fatigue, the sensitivities. And so we, we really build these programs for success. And that's the point I always try to make to people who are asking about our programs or maybe hesitant to go is, you know, there, no, no prior experience necessary whatever your success that week looks, we'll get there. If for some folks that's surfing and rolling and for some folks that's getting in the kayak the first day and then chilling in the raft the rest of the week. We just want to be sure that people realize their own success out there. I love that. So your take, what I'm hearing is you take people where they're at and you say, okay, let's look at you as an individual and where you're at and you're healing your progression. And we'll start there and we'll push a little bit, but there's not like a, a manual where everyone's going through the, a similar step-by-step thing. No, exactly. That's exactly it, Eric. And I, the progression continues throughout the week. It starts with the just getting in a kayak and learning, well, getting your gear, then learning how to wet exit. For a lot of folks, that's a tremendously intimidating thing. Yeah. And that's their week. That's success right there. And it's huge. And maybe they get in a ducky after that or set a raft. And then those who want to continue on, we work on some any turns. And then we start running rapids and then each day the rapids get a little bigger and so it's choose your own adventure we do and we do positively challenge folks to say okay should we try one more challenge or is this it and have that conversation but at the end of the day man just showing up at that program getting on an airplane for a lot of them traveling partway or all the way across the country to do something you've never done with people you've never met yeah that's a huge challenge right we just try to acknowledge uh, people's courage for showing up being who they are and, and taking on this adventure with so my friend Rob Raker uh, is a filmmaker and he filmed uh, some of your programs and he told me he came away just glowing and he said, you know, it's not just the physical stuff. It's not just the kayaking and the climbing and all these things that the group is doing, but there's a there's healing going on at the same time. There's like a curriculum in a way, if n- maybe a loose curriculum, but it's a lot of discussion, a lot of talking about what's next for you or where you're at diagnosing some of your fears and doubts. There's a lot going on besides just the physical stuff, right? Yeah, totally, man. The physical stuff is, it's just to catalyze everything else, right? It's yeah, it, it's just the thing that starts the fire, so to speak. And the kayaking, it, it's a level setter. Everyone's, no one's ever done it before at the program. So everyone's new to it. They all enter into this challenge together. And doing so creates a, a, a level of vulnerability and openness and connection that I think is just really hard to create otherwise. Uh, nature is such an incredible teacher that way. And after we get off the river, of course, there's an opportunity for people if they want to take a nap or go chill or meditate or laugh or connect, but also just a lot of time to just chat, chat with each other, get to know each other, compare your stories about the river, compare stories about your cancer. And I think through that process, that's where we, frankly, that's where we see the most healing and growth is just allowing yeah. that space for folks to, to connect with each other. Tell me some of the stories of people who have moved on and are still thriving and living. Do you have some amazing, not do you have, what are those amazing <laughs> success stories? Man, man, we have so many. Gosh, I would, I got to think about these. We've had a lot of participants go on to, and I said this earlier, but of outdoor adventure, which we don't expect that from anyone. We try to provide that path if people are interested, but a lot of them have gone on to become guides. Like this one guy, his nickname is Mogul. He actually lives in the Vale Valley. He 
came to one of our programs, decided that's what he wanted to do was live in the outdoors and be adventurous. He moved to the Vail Valley, got into skiing, became a ski instructor. Now he's a coach for the freestyle ski team. He's a kayak guide in the summers and he's just thriving, man. And every time I see him, the kid's just glowing. He's laughing and he reiterates, hey, SD, first descent is what led me to this life. And this life is making me so happy and I'm just grateful for it. And it's really cool to hear those stories. And like I said, it's not, we didn't design this program with the, to, to expect those outcomes, right. but it is pretty cool to see when that happens. You've also had on the flip side, people who are terminal, who are part of your program. Like I saw you talking about this cool guy named Brad, also Brad who had six months to live and man, what's that like when you're working with somebody and you're like, your life's ending pretty soon. Boy, that's tough. Yeah. And these programs have definitely given me a, a perspective on life and living that I, I just, you just cannot take time for granted. Right. I think you just have to choose to live each day as best you can and to find happiness in each day because it's num the, the days are numbered for all of us. Right. It's, it's a bit different that when you're faced with it, not immediately and obviously, but tomorrow could be, today could be the last day for any of us. And I think that's just a good reminder to, to love deeply and to adventure and to play and laugh and just take stock in all the beautiful things around you and the people close to you, because that's all we have. At first sense, I'd like to think that, you know, we've heard time and again that for a lot of our participants who were in those positions that through them and their families, that first sense added life to the days they had. So it yeah. it brightens the time they had. A lot of families attribute like a, a, a reason to keep living and fighting so a bit of a longer life perhaps than they would have had otherwise to that experience and those friendships they made. And you just try to find the silver linings and the bright spots and know that the pain that you feel when someone passes is because you love them. And yeah. to feel that pain is to have had that love and that love is a gift. So just, yeah. I will say though, we... we our staff, as I've said, is just amazing. We have uh, an army of incredible people running these programs, and we do try to provide them with counseling First. opportunities and services because it's a lot to it's a lot to process, man. Yeah, of course. And when somebody's got six months to live, how do maybe there's no recipe? Maybe there's maybe it's just all over the map. But this guy Brad, like, how did how does he deal with it? Does he just I'm just going to live hard for the next six months as best I can? Is there fear? Is there paralysis? What have you experienced there? Yeah, I've seen all of it. Some folks take that approach. I got this time, I'm going for it. Yeah. Uh, some people are angry. Some people are scared and sad. Uh, I guess there's just, it's messy, right? There's, it's just a messy situation oftentimes and there's no right answer. I think it's just honoring your truth, who you are, what emotions are coming up for you and just accepting that, that that's how you are feeling and there's no right or wrong way to, to feel I can't imagine in that situation and but a lot of, I have seen a lot of beauty in those in those situations too and I have learned a lot of lessons from those a lot of those friends in those situations on another subject like I'm always curious with wilderness therapy because no barriers we do that too although we don't call it therapy of course because we're not licensed counselors and things like that but it, it is a kind of healing it, it, I guess you could call it therapy but kayaking can be scary as we just already talked about. There's some adrenaline. Like I've been on kayaks going, blah, blah, oh my God, brace left, brace right. 
So how do you balance the adrenaline side and the peace? Some people are looking to move on and just have peace in their life. Like, how do you, I'm really curious because nobody knows the answer here more than you would from running this program for so many years. Is there a balance or is it a certain type of person that wants that excitement, that adventure? Yeah, I think there's a balance to your point. And like I said earlier, for some folks, like they end up in a raft for a lot of the week or or an inflatable kayak or something a little less adrenaline driven still, (laughs) but still fun and exciting. Yes. For a lot of people, they are craving that adrenaline. They they love it. I think how we try to balance it is we hold these programs in really beautiful locations. We're actually looking to buy some land right now and start making permanent homes for ourselves. In addition to this other programming we're doing, we're Gosh, we're 24 years old now, which is so weird to say. And we're really, like I said earlier, we have, we've made it 24 years. I think it's important to honor the past as you look into the future. We wouldn't be here were it not for countless volunteers and donors and employees and, you know, so many people that and who believed in this from the early, before it was even a thing. And then, you know, kind of helped carry this thing to what it is today. And now we're standing here looking out over the next hundred years uh, and trying to imagine what we want this for a legacy to become. Uh, and we, we're, we're in a position now we've never been in. We have an incredible, strong staff of passionate people. We have a, an army of volunteers. We've served over 10,000 participants in our history and so many of them are still passionately dedicated to us. An amazing board, great leadership. And so we're looking to, we're looking to get some permanency to this thing. We've been couch surfing for 24 years. We want to have a home. And so we're looking at some land around the country in different places, maybe a couple sites over the next decade or so to really build out our forever homes. And that That's the first great. criteria for that land is just a, a beautiful, inspiring place where if you go to it, you do nothing else. You don't get on the river or the rock or anything else. You're still inspired and transformed in healing, right? That's the goal. So it's a really fun phase to be in. It's a fun new chapter. It's exciting. It's intimidating. But we all, I think collectively, the organization's ready for it. And we'll have in the notes all about First Descents and how people can donate, how they can get involved, how they can learn more for sure, because it's so important. I'm such a huge fan of what you're doing. I, I always found that climbing mountains pales in comparison to trying to grow an organization. Because how do you grow it? Like you guys, it seems to me, are similar to No Barriers in the fact that you do these really deep in-person experiences that are transformative. But I'm sure you've had folks saying, we need to scale up, right? We, that's the common phrase. Let's scale up. Let's have more impact. But sometimes when you do that, the quality can slip and you can't have that kind of deep impact. And I kind of wonder sometimes, maybe we should just keep doing what we're doing and not try to scale up, not try to, instead of 10,000, now we got to work with a million people. So what's your thoughts around that? I'm so glad you brought that up, man. I, A, I I couldn't agree more. Growing an organization is really (laughs) difficult. But B, it's, we wrestled with this because a lot of organizations, a lot of donors, they just, okay, how, how many are you serving? And it's, what if you change one life forever? What if you positively impact a life and change the course of that one person's life? Isn't it all worth it? And I think similar to what you were just saying and what you guys do, we we're, we are in that deep connection space, right? Deep transfer, transformation, deep connection. We go 
on a deep dive with each person who attended their programs. And I don't want to change that. I, I would rather focus on that quality control piece that you touched on than I would serving more people for the sake of it. I want to be sure that each person we serve, we honor by serving them as best we possibly can. And our organization, our leadership is really has rallied around that belief. And I'm proud of that to say that we're not growing to say we we grew. If we grow, it's because we believe we can do it responsibly and provide that same experience, a deep transformational experience to the people that we expand to meet. Otherwise, we'll just keep getting better at what we're doing and drill down and kind of go deeper, not wider type of thing. I love it. Brad, thank you so much, man. I am such a fanboy. I'm like a goofy fanboy, man. <laughs> yeah, dude, I love mutual. hearing your story. Yeah. I love hearing about your work. I know the word inspiring gets used too much, but it's really inspiring to see what you've done and the thing you've grown, which is building this amazing community and this amazing movement that's impacting so many people at such a deep level. It's really cool. I feel like you're a kindred spirit. So thanks for being part of the No Barriers community too. Yeah, man. Thank you. I'm honored. I, I'm in just in awe of what you've accomplished as an individual, as an athlete, and as a, a philanthropist. So it's, it's as I said in the very beginning, I'm, I'm proud to call you my friend. All right, and cool. I look forward to sharing some adventures with you, bud. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. No barriers to everyone. Thanks, guys. Right. Take it easy. Thank you. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Chonk, that's me, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman, marketing and graphics support from Stone Lord, and web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at NoBarriersPodcast.com. That's NoBarriersPodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much and have a great day. See the rain, it catches.